and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 159, recorded on October 18th, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. And we start this week with the new and improved Plasma 5.20. The KDE developers say it's one absolutely massive release. More features, more fixes for long-standing bugs, more improvements to the user interface. I think they might be slightly over-egging the pudding here. It is a good release, but it didn't seem like a massive change from the last one to me. <laughs> over-egging the pudding. Yeah, we're, from where I sit, it's a very small change because one of the things that's fantastic about Plasma for a workstation is it just keeps the settings that you've set. So if you deviate from the default and you do an upgrade, it almost always keeps your deviation. And there's a lot of new things in Plasma 5.20. I think the biggest one, for example, would be the task manager is now icon-based and it's grouping windows together. That's not how I use my task manager. And I did an update to 5.20 and everything the way I like it is still just that way. And While it's really great to see these improvements land, and I think there are some really good ones in here, you might be right. Maybe they are, as you say, over-egging it just a bit. But I really appreciate, as a workstation user, I think I have gone through at least five or six fairly significant Plasma desktop updates now on this desktop right here, and it's all been really solid. It keeps working the way I expect every single day. It just seems to get better. Well, I installed KDE Neon because I wanted to see it in its default state. And the icon-only task manager, so we're talking about the panel or the taskbar as it would be in Windows, it's very Windows-like now, where you just have the icon. Now, to Linux users and people who are already used to a different way of doing things, that's a bit alien, but I wonder if it is a good idea to encourage new people who are used to this from not only Windows, but also Chrome OS. And really kind of more like how mobile would work, I suppose, which has the most users. Well, yeah, true. And the thing is that it's trivial to turn it back to what I would consider normal. You just right-click, and then there's an option for alternatives, and then you can just set it back, and it's just like, ah, okay, good, how we like. Because Plasma is just so configurable. But defaults are king, and most people don't change them ultimately, although maybe not with Plasma because it is known for its configurability. So I don't think it's a huge deal. I think that it could have upset people if it wasn't so easy to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the standard functionality is still there and, and working great. I think a lot of the improvements that have gone into making Plasma work on Wayland are easy to overlook because Wayland is the story that just keeps on going. Like it, there's never really an end to the Wayland improvements, it seems. And so it's easy to overlook those, but we're getting to a really usable state now. There's some significant usability things that are now baked into KWIN for the Plasma desktop that X users that are transitioning to Wayland would just expect, like the ability for your screenshot tool to work or for the task manager to preview the windows of the running applications or KRunner just showing up in the right place. Those things didn't necessarily work right under Wayland. And the KDE community has really been hitting this hard since 2019 And a lot of those efforts that have been just nonstop, every single release improvements, are all kind of coming together and paying off in 5.20. Yeah, and they're still looking at this from something of a legacy angle, because one of the bullet points under the Wayland improvements is the whole desktop session no longer crashes if X Wayland crashes, which is important, because this transition has been very, very slow, and I don't think that we are anywhere near a full Wayland world yet 
And so improving aspects like X Wayland are going to be important probably for years to come still. I do have to say with this release and with recent Gnome Shell releases, I think it is possible to live daily life on Wayland in certain hardware combinations. Um, I have several machines and only one of them is full-time Wayland because it just happens to be the most stable combination, which is all Intel right now. Um, and I think if you are on Plasma 520, you're going you're gonna to have pretty good results. There's other things in here, though, that are, are nice because it just feels like it, it takes Plasma closer to the metal. The system settings and info center have gained a couple of new capabilities. Joey has a great article over at OMG Ubuntu with screenshots of some of this that we'll have linked if you want to see it. But now in there, you'll get smart monitoring for your hard drives, so you get maybe a heads up if you're going to have a hard drive issue, which seems really nice. And your touchpad cursor speed can now be configured a little more accurately, and it's presented in a way that's really easy to understand and use. It's just another example of bringing things in a little bit closer, making it feel like Plasma is fully integrated with the machine. It's all one experience. And there's some small areas of polish as well, like they've redesigned the on-screen display bubbles. Now they're much smaller and subtler. It's not a huge difference. I had them side by side, the old one and the new one. And it does make a difference, though. It makes it feel slicker and just that little bit more polished, as I said. I noted that you said you tried it with KD Neon, which is what I'm using here as well. And I think I've been running it since mid to late 2018, KD Neon. And I've been upgrading every single release of Plasma as they've come out. And it has been a very rock-solid workstation. And like I started to mention at the top, it it shows me how committed the Plasma desktop developers are to letting users create their own Plasma desktop experience and then trying to preserve it the best they can. I feel like something's going on with Neon. It's more than just a test bed for Plasma developers. I think they're making a sneaky workstation OS. And they just don't want to admit it. Well, that's something that Nate Graham talked about at Academy 2020 at the uh, beginning of October, how KDE Neon's kind of this halfway house. It's basically a distro, but it's not officially, and maybe it should be a proper distro and the um, official showcase for KDE. That's kind of how I've always seen it anyway, is it's the official showcase. It's the immediate thought I go for. Okay, there's a new release of Plasma. Well, let's download and install KDE Neon because that's going to be the purest way to look at it. Yeah, I've heard it implied that the existence of KDE Neon has deterred some distributions from shipping Plasma as their default desktop. And that's why we see so many of the enterprise distributions and and products that are focused at enterprise workstations using GNOME Shell. That's the implication I've seen. I don't know if I buy that, but I do think that we don't see enough enterprise workstation-focused Linux desktops built on Plasma. There's really nothing out there right now. And I'd love to see KD Neon just say, you know what, we're going to do it. We're going to be the premier distribution for running Plasma. Uh, And I guess maybe it would take more resources. It would take a lot more than what the project probably currently has scope for. I mean, they probably have their hands pretty busy just doing what they do. So I I wouldn't want to see it harm upstream Plasma development. But I do feel like Plasma is pretty underrepresented in the workstation space, especially for how powerful it is and what a great workstation desktop environment can be because it can really be suited to to match your environment's needs in a way that most desktops can't using really good sound modern technology that has been clearly well-maintained and has a good path forward. It just seems like it just checks all the boxes. They even have an LTS release of Plasma 
and yet we don't see it featured on any of these quote-unquote enterprise distros. And maybe Neon needs to close that gap. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's not possible. But it just seems like such a shame because it's a great desktop environment that you really kind of have to go find yourself. You have to go seek it out, and you have to even know about it. And it just sort of puts them on a disadvantage in that regard. Yeah, I agree. I'd like to see it more widely used. Apart from anything else, it's more familiar to people coming over from the Windows world. Even by default, it's pretty similar to Windows in terms of the user experience compared to GNOME, which is just a complete paradigm shift, which, like it or not, whatever, it is very different from Windows, whereas Plasma, not so much. System76.com. Let me reintroduce you to who they are. Go over there, check out System76, and see the combination of hardware and software. And if you get something, tell them the Linux Action News sent you. Laptops are assembled in the U.S. You may have known that. But did you know that the Thaleo workstation is designed and built in the U.S.? The Thaleo even has a flash sale right now. So if you're listening as this episode comes out, head over to System76 as soon as you can and take advantage of their flash sale because I don't know how long it's going to last. You should jump in on that. What really makes System76 stand out now is the special hardware combined with the excellent software. I've become a big fan of their auto-tiling extension. Recently released with, with Pop! OS, it's built on modern tools, so it's sustainable. A lot like their firmware tool, which is built on Rust, also a sustainable, long-term kind of project. They measure twice, and they cut once. It shows in their software, and it shows in their hardware. The current version of Pop! OS just keeps getting better. Fractional scaling has landed in Pop! OS, hybrid graphics mode for external displays, and even more is coming. So go over to system76.com. Reintroduce yourself to what they have to offer. It's pretty great. System76.com. And when you're there, if you get something, tell them Linux Action News sent you. System76.com. The integration of hardware and software has never been better. System76.com. OpenOffice reaches the 20th anniversary mark, and LibreOffice still seems to be struggling to get out from underneath their shadow. Yeah, the board of directors at the Document Foundation published an open letter this week detailing how little development there's been of OpenOffice over the last six years and showing the relatively frantic development of LibreOffice and basically saying to them, look, give it up, guys. We should all be using LibreOffice now. Just let it die. Forward all your users onto us. Now, I look at this and I think, I understand why the Document Foundation is doing this. They do have a much more actively developed Office suite, which is just better than OpenOffice, but they don't have the mindshare. And we've talked about this before. Normal people still think of OpenOffice as the free alternative to Microsoft Office. I suppose less so now with Google Docs and things, but if you want something locally installed, oh, you don't need to pay for that Microsoft license, just go for OpenOffice. So I do sympathize with them, but that's just not really how open source works. If you fork something, you take the rough with the smooth. You are now in control of it, but you also don't have the branding that the original product had. Right. I'm sure people still refer to Nextcloud as own cloud very often. I think that Nextcloud is a good example of this. I think they've done a better job of marketing and getting their name out there. Maybe that's because we're in this Linux bubble, and maybe it's because it wasn't quite so established, own cloud as a brand. But to me, that is a better example of how to do a fork and really push some marketing effort with it. And LibreOffice have done to some extent, but here we are, nearly 10 years after they originally forked it, and still they haven't got the mindshare that OpenOffice has, despite the lack of development with OpenOffice. 
Well, and go back even further. It's 20 years since Sun initially open sourced the suite as OpenOffice. And then OpenOffice 1.0 didn't come out until two years later, 2002. And then it wasn't until 2011 that Oracle transferred OpenOffice to the Apache Foundation. And that's where we get 20 years from. So we have 20 years of OpenOffice. That's a long time for a brand name. But when you look at the NextCloud on cloud situation, there's a key difference there. People are interested in file sync and hosted services that NextCloud offer. People are not interested in Office software. What I think is really evident here is the Document Foundation and the LibreOffice team have a complex around OpenOffice holding them back. They, they look at that as that's what's limiting their success, is the brand awareness of OpenOffice, instead of addressing the wider problem, which is making their product more compelling. And yes, they've done things to make it nicer, but fundamentally, there's just not a lot of room in this market, and there's not a lot of passion and interest. And I think that's really what holds back LibreOffice. Not that OpenOffice is beleaguered out there, just sort of around absorbing all these random downloads. So I decided this morning to just take a crack at downloading OpenOffice to see what that experience is like. If you're on a Debian system, it downloads 41 different Debs in a TarGZ file that it expects you to go through and figure out the dependency chain on your own to install. And then on the Windows side, it's a super old installation process. Didn't bother going through because I don't have a Windows machine handy. But I could tell it was archaic in nature. Additionally, every modern Linux distribution, for the most part, with some exceptions, ships with LibreOffice already pre-installed. And if you attempt to install OpenOffice when you have LibreOffice on a system, that's not going to fly. So there's probably not really this ginormous amount of drive-by downloaders that are going and getting OpenOffice that would have otherwise gotten LibreOffice if only there was a note on the OpenOffice website telling them where to go. And what's even further evident when you dig in is this has become very much a personality conflict between two projects that are more alike than they are different, but yet they just can't seem to get along. And of course, there's a little bit of licensing goodness in this mix that makes it so that LibreOffice can adopt changes in OpenOffice, but OpenOffice cannot integrate changes from LibreOffice. So it's a one-way improvement window. And I don't really think the look of an open letter asking your competitor or your former forked project to shut down and tell users to go somewhere else is a very good one. It just comes across as, well, not very classy and maybe a little combative. That is true, but I don't think that your download experience there was typical. You might say that the Windows experience is archaic or whatever, but isn't that the case with most Windows applications? You just download the uh, executable and then open it and next, 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 done, maybe reboot if you're unlucky. Is that, or is it the, is it the Windows Store now? I don't know. I really don't. I don't know. I haven't used Windows enough, really, in anger to know whether people are using the store these days. I think most people who use Windows don't actually install much. Doesn't an administrator do that for them, whether that is a part of a corporate network or whatever, or just someone's uh, technical friend or whatever sets things up for them? But then if it's someone technical or a friend that's an an enthusiast, they may already know about LibreOffice. Well, that's what I would argue that maybe not. Mm. Maybe not, you know. It's possible. And that's certainly what the Document Foundation are arguing. That seems to be their main issue is that people would know they exist if it wasn't for that dang open office out there. Uh, And the open office folks responded in such. They said, we only wish that in addition to strongly encouraging a dual license contribution model, the LibreOffice would also stop heavily campaigning for Apache OpenOffice's demise. And even if somehow Apache OpenOffice died tomorrow, 
the idea that we would appoint LibreOffice or any other singular project as OpenOffice's successor seems to indicate a lack of understanding about nonprofit foundations and how they work. We must remain neutral. There are, after all, other open-source office suites available, each with their own audience and niche. I was actually surprised that you didn't argue that an, an office suite doesn't need to be updated that often. And the fact that it's been like six years since there's been any significant update to open office is fine because the word processor is essentially done. I thought that would be your argument. Well, it's the compatibility argument that Microsoft keep changing the goalposts with macros and stuff like that, that you do need to stay on top of it. Otherwise, you're going to have cross-compatibility issues. You're going to send people documents that just don't look right. I mean, even now, I still send people PDFs. I just render it to a PDF, and then there's no chance of it not looking right. Even with basic, like, just Word documents that are just like a basic invoice with a couple of different fonts or whatever, I've had that show up with the, the bank details not work and stuff. And you only have that once when you have to send an invoice twice. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I think also we would be negligent if we didn't mention that... There's plenty of really good text editors available now if you just want to write. There's purpose-built text editors for all kinds of different writing. And then there is pretty feature-rich web-based word processors like Google Docs and Office 365 that are available to everybody that has an internet connection. And so I think when you combine the fact that there is a very viable industry standard in Microsoft Office, when you add in a little bit of open office brand recognition, combine that with the online word processors, and it seems like there's probably not a very growing market for LibreOffice. It probably much has a very established user base. Yeah, I agree. It's sad. But I think it's true. I don't think we can kid ourselves that people are looking to run something locally and natively when they can just fire up a web browser and open a Google Doc for free. All you need is a Google account, which is free to get. And we in the open source world don't like that idea. A lot of people don't trust Google or Microsoft or whatever and want to run things locally. But that does seem like not exactly a growth market to me. You're right. And I appreciate this is very much a dog bites man story in this regard, but it's painful to see these two projects bicker publicly at each other in what seems like pandemic and not really all of that meaningful differences, but they to them mean all of the world. And you add in a little bit of license radicalization and it's just polar opposite opinions on certain topics and they can't work together when clearly they each would benefit so much by collaborating. And they obviously share more in common than they have in actual technical differences, but yet they just cannot see eye to eye. You add in the licensing differences between the projects, and it's oil and water. And it it makes me a little disappointed to see it still, because it's just, it's such a waste of great resources. But yet, they can't come to any kind of agreement, any kind of terms together, and it seems like there's bad blood. And I got to agree with the folks at OpenOffice and the Apache Foundation. It does feel like LibreOffice is championing a death watch for OpenOffice. I mean, let's face it. Now, you and I are kind of watching thinking, okay, well, let's see how long an OpenOffice sticks around now. It's on our minds now. Yeah, and I'm sure that people will write to us about the various online hosted versions of LibreOffice that they're working towards, but it's just nowhere near Google Docs is it? Or Microsoft. I've never actually used the Microsoft one, but even um, Dropbox has their paper, which mm -hmm. is reasonably good. And I, I just don't think that we are anywhere near there with LibreOffice. Yeah. And I think the other thing, and this is, I guess, maybe my last thing on this, is I feel like teams, especially teams that are working from home, 
are picking tools that work for their jobs, you know, various kind of more specialized tools. An example here is we very heavily use Code EMD. So we have tons of documents we create at Jupyter Broadcasting, lots and lots, but they're all in Code EMD. We're not, we're not using Google Docs or Office 365 because we want everything in Markdown. We want real-time collaboration. We want syntax highlighting, and we want to be able to render out real previews and share links with each other over messaging platforms and whatnot. And so we just gravitated to mostly using Code EMD now and don't really consider writing anything else. So I, I don't even bother installing an Office suite. You might want everything in Markdown. <laughs> Not everyone does. Oh, they just don't yet. <laughs> Linode.com slash LAN. Go there to get a $100 60-day credit towards a new account. Linode is the largest independent cloud computing provider. They started three years before AWS because they saw the feature capabilities of Linux before just about anybody else. And no matter what Linux skill you're at or what technology stack you use, Linode can help your ideas come to life on the web. I was just going over my Linode dashboard. Their cloud manager makes it really, really easy to use Linode. I currently have five running rigs and four attached disks to those five running rigs, because one of them is just using the built-in disk. But what's really nice about this is I, I wanted to create a reproducible system so I could test something before I deployed it in production. And I discovered Linode images, which allow you to take a snapshot of your disk, and then you can just deploy them to any other Linode under your account. Man, is this super useful when you're trying to bootstrap a master image for a large deployment, or in my case, something I'm deploying over and over and over again? You can upload that image to your cloud dashboard and just deploy it when you need it. It's now available. There's no additional charge to store images for Linode users. They're limited to six gigs, but that's it. That's your only limitation. So now I'm rocking that preloaded with the stuff we need to do testing. It's also just a great way to get a base install the way I want it. Linode has so many features that make it just a default for me when I'm deploying something. I don't bother setting up a local server anymore when I need something quick because they have $5 a month rigs. But on top of that, what I really appreciate about Linode is they have access to infrastructure and bandwidth. It's just not realistic for my small business or myself personally to get access to. And unlike other entry-level hosting services that lock you into their platform, Linode gives you full backend access to customize and control your server to fit your needs. I use their DNS manager to manage a couple of my domains right there inside the Linode dashboard. It's really easy. They're independently owned and founded on a love for Linux, which means they're in this for the long haul. They're not just a, a shoot to the moon and see how big we can get. They have been building this over and over periods of years independently. And you guys know I love that. They've been supporting Linux and other open source initiatives like our favorite Kubuntu, or our beloved Linux Fest Northwest. So go see what I've been talking about. Go to linode.com slash LAN. You support this show, that lets them know you heard it here, but also it gets you that $100 credit towards a new account for 60 days. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. linode.com slash LAN. Another week, another Bluetooth vulnerability. This time it caused a bit of drama though. Yeah, it seems like there wasn't very much heads up given to the distributions or kernel maintainers. And at the same time that there wasn't a lot of heads up given, Intel kind of just started committing that the fix would land in certain versions of stuff without actually talking to the projects and then had to walk it back. They said, for example, the flower about to talk about that the fix would be in kernel 5.9. And then they had to walk that back and say, oh, no, 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 actually, it's going to be in kernel 5.10. And it's not like Intel doesn't know how to do this, right? They should know, especially after Meltdown, really how to nail this. And they blew it again. They dropped this on the maintainers with no heads up. 
they got the announcement in the morning and the news was public by the late afternoon. You mentioned kernel 5.10. Well, at one point, Intel said, oh, it's all fixed. It's available in 5.10. And then people realized, hang on, that's not coming out until December. What are you talking about, Intel? And you got to be thinking like Fedora 33 and Ubuntu 2010 that are just about to release. They've got to be hustling now, even after they've reached their relative freezes to try to get this fix in. So here's the problem and what you need to worry about is it's a flaw that resides in BlueZ, the software stack that by default implements all Bluetooth core protocols and layers for Linux. Besides Linux laptops, it's used in a lot of consumer and industrial Internet of Things devices, and it impacts any version of Linux after version 2.46 of the kernel. So it's it's been around for a while. Well, that means most Internet of Things devices will be fine then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, because they're on 2.2. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, it's known as Bleeding Tooth. It's a set of zero-click vulnerabilities in the Linux Bluetooth subsystem that can allow an unauthenticated remote attacker in a short distance, so they have to be within range of your Bluetooth system, to execute arbitrary code with kernel privileges on devices that are vulnerable. But the reality is this is very specific, and if you were going to attack someone via a Bluetooth vulnerability, you'd probably be using the older Blueborn. So it's not quite the huge catastrophe that some people are making it out to be. It still needs to be patched. Yeah. And how Intel disclosed this appears to be not very responsibly, or it certainly wasn't managed very well. Either that or somehow... Everyone else was caught sleeping on this, which seems less likely to me. Ideally, Intel would have given the projects some heads up to start working on this, because once the information is out there, people will start working on tools to make it more and more efficient to exploit it. This advisory is assigned a severity score of 8.3 out of a possible 10. It's CVE 2020-1235-1 if you want to look it up. But I have to agree with you, Joe. While technically it's an issue and it impacts many generations of Linux, and I hate to see that, at the end of the day, it requires serious proximity to actually exploit it, and it's only going to be able to do so much depending on the software-hardware stack combo. There's variations of success that they'll reach. But it really just goes on the big pile of vulnerabilities for IoT devices that never get updates, which is, let's face it, most of them. Right. And, without a doubt, it'll be all these vulnerabilities added up that the robots use to exploit to take over and control everything and deploy their AI. Sometimes I'm convinced that's already happened, man. Pulled right out of the everyone-saw-this-one-coming file, the CUPS printing system has essentially stopped development. It's seemingly dried up since the end of 2019. Yeah, it was Michael Larabelle over at Phronix who brought this to everyone's attention. And like he said, we all pretty much saw this coming when Michael Sweet left Apple at the end of 2019. There's not many people left to work on it. So instead of there being sort of 300-ish commits per year, there's only been one in the whole of 2020. But the question is, does this really matter anymore? Because printing seems to have moved on to driverless and more of the functionality happening on the actual printers themselves rather than needing something complex like cups. Oh, I think very much. Um, I'll get to that. So the background here, why is the Apple involved? What do they have to do with it? Apple adopted cups, the common Unix printing system, for Mac OS in 2002. And they hired its author, Michael Sweet, in 2007. That's also when Apple essentially acquired the CUPS source code. Sweet continued to work on printing at Apple, including CUPS, until December 2019 when he left to start a new company, which, by the way, I think is actually working in the printing space, but more 
focused at uh, receipt printers and smaller printing. Yeah, labels and stuff. Yeah. Asked at the time, though, by the register uh, what was going to happen with the future of Cups, he said, quote, Cups is still owned and maintained by Apple. There are two other engineers still in the printing team that are responsible for Cups development, and it will continue to have new bug fix releases, at least for the foreseeable future. So it's possible Apple is working on an internal fork or branch that they're updating that they will then do a code dump. Not ideal, but possible. But I'll tell you what, Joe. This is why Cups matters. Cups changed my career. It it was so massive for me. At the time, I worked at a uh, bank that had 40 branch locations. Every location had several tellers with the teller printers, and they had big laser printers for the loans. And nothing could really handle this kind of complex printing that they were doing except for cups. I mean, it it really, it saved our bacon. And we had something at the time like 700 printers or something. No, it was even more than that. It was, it was a ridiculous amount of printers. And you need something that you can, you can go in there and you can tweak a little bit. You can customize. You can load in a PPD and get support for a printer all of a sudden. You need something that manages all of that and abstracts away the vendor implementations of protocols that are always crap. And the thing that Cups really was great at is they came out of the gate with the Internet Print Protocol support and PPD support. So vendors could easily release a file that made it possible to print on Linux, and it just changed the printing game for Linux. The future projects that are out there, they're ambitious. I look forward to where they're going. But, for example, the one that's kind of more targeted for Linux from open printing now, which is a fork of cups, is removing PPD support. It's going to be great for home users that that go buy a, a, a combo printer and put it on the network and Linux auto-discovers it. Like, that is going to work better one day which actually works pretty good today, but it's going to work better one day. But what is going to take a major hit is the enterprise side of things where you have central print servers that manage print queues and people have a total that they're allowed to actually print. There's print quotas and things are tracked to particular clients because it goes back to billing. Those kinds of systems need something like CUPS. And um, I, I, I hate it when Linux has something and it's enterprise grade and you begin to depend on it and then it fades and we have to invent something new to replace it, which is often better in some ways, but maybe is kind of lacking certain features in other ways that make it not as great, not as not as one-to-one replacement. And I feel like that's the future we're going into is we won't have a good one-to-one replacement to cups. To avoid going on, though, about printers forever because I know not everybody cares, I just put a few resources in the show notes, if you're curious about where printing is going, what the Linux Foundation's open printing effort has in store, those links are in the show notes at linuxactionnews.com slash 159. Linux.ting.com. It's mobile that makes sense. You just pay for what you use. $6 for your line, and then you just pay for your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. I'm on Wi-Fi almost all the time, except for when I'm driving between the studio and Lady Jupes. It's it's Wi-Fi for me. And so it makes a lot of sense to only pay for what I use. And I, I maybe make two or three or four actual phone calls a week tops. And, and maybe it's even one actual phone call a week. The rest are all over VoIP. Why would I pay for those cellular minutes that I'm not using? And rest assured, Ting has you covered with three nationwide networks from coast to coast. There's a lot you can choose from. I've been enjoying Verizon recently. And this is no contracts mobile. There's no lock-in here. You just pay for what you use risk-free. You're in control the entire time, too. They have a fantastic dashboard that lets you take complete control over your account. You can set usage alerts. You can individually name different phones. You can check in on 
how little Susie's doing on her new phone. And, and let's talk about devices. Of course, they're compatible with the latest and greatest galaxies or iPhones or Pixels or whatever you might want to throw on there. But I would, enc- I would encourage you, if you don't have a phone already, go to ting.com slash shop. Well, do the show a solid. Go to linux.ting.com. That way you get a $25 discount off the device, and it says, hey, I heard about it here on the show. I'm supporting Linux Action News. They've got a bunch of really nice devices, like the Motorola Moto E. Yeah, it's still a thing, and you can get it for $99, unlocked, fully yours from Ting. But if you have a device, that might be a great way to go. They have a compatibility checker. Head over to linux.ting.com and click on the Check Your Phone link. Then go in there, put in your phone's IMEI, and it'll tell you if it's compatible with the Ting. If it is, it's click, click, click. You don't even have to talk to a human. You're good to go, and you'll get that $25 service credit. So then, your first month, it's probably paid for. That's how awesome Ting is. It's just that great. So go check it out. Get started. linux.ting.com. Well, my heart skipped a beat this week when I received an email from the Antennapod team telling me that a major new version had been released. I was panicking that, oh no, they haven't changed my favorite podcast player, have they? Well, they have, but only a little bit, and I think ultimately they are improvements. If you're on Android and you're like a power podcast listener, you should probably be looking at Antennapod. It has features that none of the other podcast catchers have, but they've added a few things, too, that are new. An option to export your favorites to an HTML file. They'll ask you if you prefer streaming over downloading when you just stream the podcast very often, which is great if you don't have a lot of storage space or you're on Wi-Fi. And they have feed settings to reduce volume or skip an episode's intro or ending. If you know kind of what the timing is, you can put them in there per feed, and it'll just do that for every episode for you. And then the one that I am super happy to see, even though we don't take advantage of it today, support for chapter images is awesome because we do chapters in almost all of our shows, with some exceptions. And to be able to display something up there is really nice in those rare times you need to show a visual um, but there's just a ton of other good stuff in AntennaPod, so it seems that version 2 is even better. I'm assuming you got a chance to kick the tires? Yeah, I immediately updated when I got this email and was immediately relieved. And then I've just been discovering little changes since. It did kind of feel like it was due for an update. It had been a while. The last update, I didn't like it. changed it completely, but I got used to it. And now they're adding these features like the being able to set a certain number of seconds that you skip at the beginning or end and... Um, you can sync with Gpodder and everything. It does feel like a proper modern podcast player now. And the fact that it is, I mean, it's really the only game in town in terms of open source podcast players on Android, at least. I feel like I could recommend it before this update because it's open source to Linux people. Whereas now with the additional features, I feel like I can just recommend it just full stop. Like it is a great podcast player. They do mention in the press release for this that they're going to soon add support for podcastindex.org, which is the new database from Adam Curry, which is kind of his open competitor to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll have to see if that actually takes off. I'm a little bit skeptical, but it's good that they're thinking about the future anyway and adding that in. And also related to this release was a community-led effort to redesign the logo. And Antennapod put it out to a public vote. There was a ratings and analysis, and they made their decision, and they have a new logo as part of this process, too, that was uh, made by their own community. Which does look more modern and seems to kind of fit in more with the other modern app icons that I can see on my phone. But it's different, and I don't like change, so <laughs> I wish I could just have the old one. But as much as I don't like change... 
a change is coming to this show. Yeah, it's mixed news, really. It's good news in the sense that our buddy Drew has a a new job, and it looks like a good a good job for him, and we're excited for him. But it also means that we have a gap in who will be editing Linux Unplugged. And ladies and gentlemen, Linux Unplugged is a particularly challenging kind of show, the way we do it. And there's really only a few people that are qualified to edit. And with Drew stepping out to take on his new gig, it leaves us with the need of an editor. And the only other qualified person I know to edit that show is Joe, which is a big ask. And it's a big time commitment. Yeah. And we kind of talked about this and how to try and make it work. And ultimately, I only really have time to either do that or this. And so Wes is going to step up and take over from me on this show. I couldn't think of a better person to do it. Wes and Drew would be the kind of toss-up. Drew's way too busy with his new job. Wes is the man for the job. Yeah, and Wes has always been helping the show behind the scenes. He's often stepped in when one of us has needed a weekend off. And uh, he's always been following the news very closely. And so he's going he's gonna to be able to step in and just hit the ground running. And that's... You know, that's going to be great for, for the show production, but it's also going to be great to, to just get his take on the news because he's got a really sharp eye and he's thought a lot about these. And while I know Wes will do a great job, I, of course, will miss doing this show with you. So you'll have to come by Linux Unplugged from time to time and harass us. And, of course, I think you got to come back for the end of year predictions review. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to come back and make sure that I beat you. I'll manage to twist the facts so that I beat you on that. And, you know, if you always are away, then I'll be around to step in. But it's just that weekly commitment that I don't have time for. Yeah, and as part of bringing JB back to Indy, JB 3.0, is we want to try to keep everything sustainable. We don't want to overdo it and burn ourselves out. We've learned our lessons. We know what's sustainable and we know what's not. And so that's also at play here. It's just in part for the longevity of the show because I don't want to burn either one of us out. And it will be nice to have you come by and visit from time to time. And who knows what might happen in the future if circumstances change and timings and schedules work out better. I could end up coming back. Yeah, although I'm never talking to you again, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. Yeah, yeah. Also, you know, maybe uh, go subscribe to the All Jupiter Broadcasting Shows feed. You never know what could be in the future as things change. And the first place you'd see something like a new show or something like that would be in the All Shows feed. So you can find the All Jupiter Broadcasting Shows feed in your podcast catcher or at our website. I will be back for one last episode next week, though. So go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. You can find me at chrislast.com. And check out my shows Late Night Linux and 2.5 Admins. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later. Bye.